Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Patrick Madden, an essayist. Now, for most of us, an essay, that thing we were assigned to write in high school, or maybe that thing we stayed up all night writing in college, doesn't immediately evoke feelings of joy and excitement or associations of pleasure and profundity. No, an essay isn't something we usually chose to do. And we can take this view of the essay even further. I'm guessing most of us didn't grow up hoping to be an essayist. In fact, we might be surprised to recall that such an identity actually exists. When, after all, is the last time you met an essayist, if you ever have? Well, I'm happy to say that if you haven't, today is the day and I couldn't think of a better essayist to dispel any wizened views of the essay that you or I might hold than Madden. His new book, Disparates, is full of delights and surprises and goofy jokes and riffs on rock lyrics and doodles and, just as often, moving insights on how all of these things are intrinsic to what makes us human. And in the spirit of Madden's essays, this interview also has a surprise guest, one whose intelligence and good humor has made this conversation a high for me in nearly a decade of conversations with the New Books Network. Pat Madden, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks a lot, Eric. It's good to have you here, and I'm excited to talk about your new book, Desperates. Um, and I, I have a favor to ask in, by way of bringing it into it, to bringing us into it. Sure. Um, which is, you, you tell this... In one of your essays, you talk about this riddle you tell uh, that involves people on a bus. I was wondering if you could tell us the riddle, if we could start there. Sure. And I won't even read it. I'll just kind of make it up in this new version. So, And it works better audibly, so I'm glad you brought it up. So for you or for the listeners, you're driving a bus around your town. You leave from the, from the terminal with nobody on board. At the first stop, you pick up seven passengers. At the next stop, three more get on. By the next stop, two get off and three get on. At the following stop, it's a big popular place. Seven people get off the bus, but three new ones get on. At the next stop, nobody gets off, but two more people get on. And at the following stop, seven people get off. Hope you've been following. What is the bus driver's name? I'll give listeners a beat. So I know having read your essay that it's Eric because it's you are driving a bus. Um, Tell us a little bit about what that riddle illuminates about the essay. Well, I love that it, it, 
misleads. It, it generates certain expectations, but it does them. It, it it does that a little bit sideways, right? The very first line is you're driving a bus. The very first word is you, and it's clear. It's not obscured or hidden, but people just don't hook onto it. What they hook onto is the numbers of people getting on and off the bus. And so even though they've not been instructed to do so generally, I think almost universally, they start calculating. And they may eventually get lost because I mean, it's just simple addition and subtraction, but um, it goes kind of fast. And if they're not math whizzes, if, you know, that kind, then they might be thinking, oh, I've lost it. And when the riddle resolves, the question is not how many people are left on the bus, which we expect, but what is the bus driver's name? So I think essays generally play with expectations. They might play with the expectations that readers bring to them, such as, oh, he's giving me a lot of numbers on and off, therefore I'm expecting a, an arithmetic problem. But it also might subvert the expectations like that riddle does. So it, it tricks the reader or the listener. It tricks the listener far better than the reader because the reader can go back and look at the beginning and see, oh, I'm the bus driver. Um, and I think some of my favorite essays are the ones that resolve in a way very similar to that. They fulfill the expectation in a way that's also subverting the expectation. And so they can bring you to a kind of insight or at least a little bit of a chuckle in the case of this riddle. Oh, Yeah, there, there are very few essayists um, that love the form as much as you do, that, that talk about the form, that turn it over. I mean, I think there are essays that love to write essays, but it's a little bit different than, than just the sheer kind of excitement about what the essay is and can be, and more particularly isn't. Um, and so I wonder if you could, you know, kind of crisscross that last answer and, and tell us a little bit about what you see the essay being. And let's imagine that there are listeners out there that, that aren't like us. There are ones that they hear essay mm -hmm. and they think back to maybe freshman composition or what they asked, you know, were asked to do in high school or something like that. Um, the associations, the general associations, I don't think capture the kind of joy and spiritedness that we find not only in the examples, but in your explicit return to talking about the genre and exploring its history um, and its possibilities. Right. So I would say I am, I'm aware of how much I invoke the essay, qua essay, how much I meta write, but not to the extent that it lands in readers' minds. So I'm consistently surprised when I read a review of my own work that people gravitate to that or that that sticks out so much to them. And I think I'm incorrigible now. I mean, I cannot get beyond that returning to the process of writing about the process of essaying. And I, maybe one cool anecdote or side note is at our alma mater, where you now teach, Ohio University, is where I became infected. I came to Ohio in 1999 to start the PhD program there and studied under David Lazar. And at the time, I was much more of a narrative writer. I wanted to see things, you know, arc and round out and resolve rather nicely in a narrative way. But I had a classmate 
and colleague Michael Danko, whose essays were always very meandering, always very meta-essayistic, calling attention to their process. I remember in our first workshop, the first time we talked about one of his pieces, my comments in the margins were along the lines of, you're taking me out of the story, that sort of default response that you hear a lot. I hear a lot now. And so at the first, I wasn't enamored of essay as an essay. I was more interested in the power of story. And But the, the experience at Ohio University really enlightened me or wore down my resistances. We just read thousands of essays. And the older the essays, the more likely they are to be meta-essayistic. So like I was just reading today in Montaigne's essay of cripples and found, you know, several lines, but here's like a soundbite one. He says, I talk about everything by way of conversation and about nothing by way of advice. So he's, uh, enacting and embodying the essayistic principle not to be didactic, not to tell you what to think, but to just explore things. And I also came from a real love of math and science. I have an undergrad degree in physics, and I just wanted a world where everything could be determined exactly by formula, where you could predict the results with confidence and you know, close them off and know them factually. But the more I've matured, and a large part of that was studying at Ohio University, the more I've realized that that's a false paradigm through which to see the world. And it's also a kind of, not utterly, but more barren version of existence. And so I've just grown to love the openness and complexity, the vast unknowability of the world that the essay recognizes engages with, plays with, and also reproduces in an artistic way. So, yeah, and that's, I think, the true spirit of the essay. And I really lament that people use the term essay to describe something so attitudinally opposite what essays really want to do. I love what you said in that the, the essay is a genre actually is an analog to or maybe an embodiment of a certain kind of vision of the world, like one that invites openness and unknowingness and possibility and surprise and association, um, and that doesn't shut down the complexities and the, the kind of vast curiosities that the world presents. Right, right. Uh, not everybody's going to say like, oh yeah, I was just reading Montaigne this morning. I think you might be the one person <laughs> in the country that's doing that. Now that doesn't oh. mean, that doesn't mean, there must be, yeah, a, few there more. Must be a few more. Um, that doesn't mean that the people aren't familiar with Montaigne, certainly by no stretch of the imagination. But if, if, if people were to imagine the vision, if they flipped through the selected essays of Montaigne or read a few of them, right? And then hear you as this kind of uh, not only modern day, you know, champion of Montaigne, but impersonator of Montaigne in some guises, we might get to that. Um, you know, opening your book, I think it would be surprising because they'd see doodle essays and essays as interviews and Q&A essays and Sudoku essays. 
gray out essays, haiku and pangram essays, text image essays, spoofs, and you even translate an essay of Montaigne. Um, so I think there's a lot of that that playfulness going on even in form. Could you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. you know this this vast variety of of formal play that's going on? Um, you know, a Sudoku essay. What even is that? Right. A water bottle essay. So, yeah, I do wish I had written a Sudoku essay. It's a word search essay, but Sudoku is mentioned in there. You've got me thinking, like, how would the Sudoku essay <laughs> work? But yeah, the word search was a lot easier to do because it's, you know, words jumbled and filled in with nonsense letters. Um, I think, yeah, Montaigne never did exactly those things. I like to think that his spirit of linguistic play, of low aspirations or something, like he constantly talks about his work not being artful, but grotesque. He doesn't, at least he doesn't, uh, admit to thinking very highly of his style, but he does recognize that he's doing something quite different from the systematizers of his day, the people who would write in order to instruct, in order to convince, you know, and then felt they had to generate elaborate philosophical systems that were rhetorically sound and convincing and stuff like that. So I think, I would admit, when I first read Montaigne, I didn't really get his humor. But upon repeated readings, I, and maybe reading, you know, more modern translations too, I was able to see that he was really playful, always joking, turning things over, uh, poking fun at himself and at the default expectations or assumptions of his culture and stuff like that. So maybe if he had the technology like we have today where we can, you know, change the shape of things on the page very easily without additional cost and you know, images and so forth. He might've done something even more like what's happening in this book. Um, but anyway, yeah, not the whole book, but a fair portion of the book is made up of hermit crab essays or uh, essays in borrowed forms, things that look like other types of documents and even you know, realistically exist as those types of documents. So like the word search is an actual word search. It works. All the words are within the jumble. You can find them and circle them. The back of the book has the solutions. So you can see that. Or the water bottle was an eBay auction because Michael Martone, fellow writer, had written about drinking the leftover water uh, from writers that came to visit uh, his university. And so I took his leftover water, assuming that it would contain everybody's cooties, and I sold it on eBay. And it was actually an eBay auction. The bottle sold for a little over 20 bucks and so forth. But it also is an essay. So I think that too is a kind of essaying. You know, the form of subsequent paragraphs, a title followed by all these paragraphs, is a form too. It's just happened to be the default that we tend not to think of or to imbue with any meaning beyond what the text itself says. We don't think outwardly about the form. Um, but these different borrowed forms, I hope, 
all tie in inherently with the subject matter and therefore enhance the ideas that the essays are exploring. Uh, they may be a little gimmicky and certainly different readers will have different responses to them. Some might see them as pure gimmick, but I've tried not to, you know, lead with the form, not to, Hey, this is a cool form. And then the content or the substance of it doesn't hold up. I've tried to make the form contribute somehow to the meanings that I'm exploring. And I think, I mean, that's what essays are always doing for the last 400 plus years. Yeah, there's there's one, I mean, one or two of them, I'll tell you, I had the response of like the groaner, like when the gnome comes in oh, yeah. at the side of the gnomic essay and it's, you know, a garden gnome just making an off, off camera appearance at the pay. I mean, it was funny and I was like, oh, Pat. Uh, yeah. um, but then like the, you, you do a collaboration with a bot, um, but the bot is you. Could you maybe tell us about that one as an example? Because it's kind of fascinating. And, and that's one that for me started off and I had certain expectations about what you were going to do, but then it, it took that kind of surprising turn um, that the riddle did. Yeah. So I would say, I just said, I don't usually lead with the form, but in that one, I surely did. The the idea, I didn't know what the idea would be about, but I did, well, at least a certain subjects I didn't discover until I was writing them. But it sounded so fascinating and it tied in really well with my desire for textual immortality and my thinking about originality. I should mention, Eric, that it has, uh, we, the world knows, and by the world I mean a handful of people who actually have noticed or cared, that you are one of the many people who contributed to that essay on originality that I wrote for my last book. Um, I consider it some of my best you work. You doing that? There you go. Some of your best work that uh, I hope you at least put on your CV somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, the idea of that essay of what if there was in the air some you know, discussion of plagiarism and who owns words, especially with David Shields' book, Reality Hunger. But I was thinking, what if people were to attempt to write in my style without acknowledgement or credit, would that fly? Would it, you know, would it pass muster or something like that? And I don't entirely know because it's a very long essay and nobody ever came to me and said, this doesn't sound like you, but then again, maybe nobody ever read it. So I'm concerned in with thinking about originality, especially in dismantling the idea of originality, the way we typically think of it as a kind of individual genius in a vacuum. So with this one, I was wondering, I'd heard about this predictive text bot that could be used, you feed it text, and then it, whatever algorithm it use, decides which words are the most likely to follow in sequence, and it presents you with a a grid of whatever, 27 or so words that you can click through and choose from to create sentences and paragraphs, etc. So I fed it my first two books and then played around with it to see what sort of things I could write given my own tendencies, propensities in my past books. And I found my first draft of it was 10 paragraphs that were 
weirdly philosophical, a bit nonsensical, and certainly didn't hold together all that well. They had a lot of like aphoristic quality, but from one to the next, I couldn't follow a narration and that sort of thing. It was impossible to keep the train of thought or the train of narrative going. Um, but then my good friend of yours, Joey Franklin, who's the far better Montaigne imitator um, in, in dress and style, at least, uh, suggested that I footnote each paragraph with non-predictive text and see what I could thread through the essay. And then it became an essay about the participatory universe, the ways in which meaning does not inhere in objects or even words, but it's a negotiation between a perceiving mind or like a, a mind at play with language and that sort of thing. And so it began rather scattered and haphazard, but fun. And then I hope, at least I feel like it became a thing that really thinks about the subjects it was exploring even in the gobbledygook. You know, how do we create meaning? Uh, what is originality? Can people claim ownership of even their words when so much is collaborative, you know, between ourselves and the world, others, the people who've in the past developed our language, etc. So, yeah, what are the, anyway, that's a long, what are the, (laughs) what are the gestures by which our identity is established, whether that's in our, our stylistic gestures within our own work. um, And then you can just kind of start to unfold that outward and to say, you know, what are the, what are the habits, the proclivities, the natures of the interactions that make me, me or us, us. Um, So it, it, it keeps expanding and growing from what seems at first like a, you know, a kind of game, like what can I get the robot to do? Yeah. Um, Well, one of the things you do in this book is that you, you bring in a lot of people and you feature them in your essay. So collaboration Mm -hmm. is a big part of it. And um, there are a lot of essayists that show up in there. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, this, you could call it a motif in the book, but really it's something like you decided, hey, I want to invite a bunch of people in to to co-create these things, not just robots. Um, tell, tell me a little bit right. about that. <laughs> I think that too grew out of the, the project with that essay on originality from Sublime Physics, where people kind of hid themselves within my style. And I thought, well, a different way of approaching it could be um, that they would be unmasked. They would they would be free to express themselves as themselves, but kind of within a structure that I'd initiated with my essays. So that essay, by the way, in, in Sublime Physic, you would know, is called Independent Redundancy, and it's almost 100, word, 100 pages long. So it's a rather onerous essay. But anyway, um, I was just thinking about how often musicians invite fellow musicians to sing a bridge or usually it's singers, right? But sometimes even just play a guitar part or another instrument on their songs. And 
So the title of the song usually has in parentheses F-E-A-T period and Snoop Dogg or whoever might be your featured your featured artist, right? And these give a new flavor, right? They borrow from the style of the featured musician, but the outer frame of the piece of the song is is by the the marquee name or whatever. So because I admire so many other writers and I wanted to see what they might do if set loose within my essays, I just asked a few people and I thought initially that the idea would be, well, here's an essay of mine. Usually they're fairly short essays. Uh, Can you break into it somewhere and write a paragraph interstitially? And uh, several people did just that to great effect. Sometimes those appear at the end. Sometimes they're in the middle. I don't think anybody leads off, but that might have happened. But then a few people did some other interesting things. Uh, Lena Ferreira did an erasure text for my essay. So my words and my orders, she just took out blocks between them and created a new and different weird kind of cool essay. Um, Elena Passarello in an essay on thumbs where I was just goofing with the word interchanging some for thumb. And especially in music, she just listed a ton of songs in the margins that she'd done likewise with. Um, In one case, Michael Martone wrote, or maybe even had already done an entire essay that we just kind of tacked on there. Um, David Lazar and I actually worked together to create this in step with Parade Magazine feature about Montaigne. Uh, Stephen Haney was a student of mine years ago, and I had assigned the class to put a Montaigne essay through Google Translate and then massage the language into something intelligible in English. But he went nuts with it and created this I think hilarious, blasphemous translation of Montaigne's essay of smells. And it was quite rough, so I tweaked it and uh, I would give him first credit on it. But, you know, my contribution was of the type that I thought we could include in the book and he gave us permission as well. So, and then Joe Strike's contribution to one essay there was initiated by a Facebook post he made and he'd understood a Rush lyric in a way very different from how I'd understood it. And so we got into a conversation there and that made its way into the essay too. So, And I think you, you bring out uh, in the book itself that, that this is very much in the, the vein of the essay as, as, you know, capaciously understood that, you know, starting with Montaigne, bringing in other voices uh, is the way that essays grow. And so this just makes that, that impulse more explicit and more alive. Yeah, I would say too, even when I wasn't inviting people to create new material for my book, I was always in conversation with other people, a lot, a lot of them, you know, great dead writers. But I think that's one of the things essays have always done too. Montaigne was in conversation with his lodestar idea 
people, mm-hmm. right? And in his first edition of the essays, they weren't even cited. They weren't acknowledged. He just kind of uh, assumed their words. And then later editors have told us who was who was saying what. So Exactly, because we aren't quite yeah. as well read or not read in that tradition. Well, in the spirit no. of featuring others, um, we had this idea that we might bring in somebody else as part of the interview. And, uh, and luckily she agreed. And this is Addie Madden, who is your daughter, who appears, makes some appearances in it. Um, Addie, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, could you introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us about, you know, where, where are you in your, your journey? Yeah, so I am 21 now, and I'm just finishing up my bachelor's degree. Um, I'm going to Utah Valley University, and I went there for a little bit in high school as well, but I'm getting my degree in communications with an emphasis in journalism and media studies. So like my dad, I also enjoy writing. I'm not sure if I'm uh, as good or as confident as he is, but I also like to write. Um, and yeah, other than that, I work part-time at a, uh, like security company, which is not where I hope to end up, but you know, (laughs) you get it where you can, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anything that will be flexible with school right now. Well, so if, if somebody said, you know, take a day off of work, we'll give you, you know, the day's salary, but we want you to write an essay. What might you write that essay on? I think it, um, I mean, it definitely does kind of depend. I think the most prevalent thing on my mind would be maybe like social issues. I tend to try to keep myself informed on issues such as those. I've also recently uh, been talking more to my grandpa and kind of the idea of, I, I guess, how different our upbringings are within like my grandpa or my grandparents and then my parents and then me. And even with my younger siblings, it's just very, it's interesting to think about, I guess, how relatively little time has passed, but how different the world is just between those couple of years or, you know, decades of, of years. And so maybe something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, yeah. I would love to read that essay. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, well, th- there's you're a kind of collaborator um, in one of these essays, which is that that you give your father the line that becomes the center of the essay. Um, you say at the age of seven, kind of breezing past him after a doctor's appointment, I've, I've never seen the top of my head. Do you remember 
that experience, that line? Um, honestly, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. that's great. But I think one yeah. of the nice things about having you on is is the difference between the the two experiences. Um, and later in that essay, there's a there's a kind of like acrobatic thing that you and your father do around Jeopardy, where you get flung in the air. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. I do remember that. That was something that happened pretty frequently growing up. Um, and even if it wasn't, you know, after Jeopardy, it was always before bed in my bedroom. Just, yeah, <laughs> I do remember yeah. that. Well, I was wondering, you know, one of the things that that's great to do in these sorts of interviews is give readers a sense of the book, you know, like Pat and I have been talking about what the book's like and, you know, what the forums are doing and things, but to get a feel of the actual book. Um, I was wondering if you could read a very short essay in the book. It's called Poetry, and it's about you and your dad. Yeah, I would love to. That would be great. All right. So, like... Like you said, it's titled Poetry, but it goes, The other day as we left the doctor's office, my seven-year-old daughter Adriana brushed past me, pronouncing to the air, I've never seen the top of my head. She kept on her way to the car without pause, without a sidelong glance to find an answer or response. I smiled and caught the essay she had given me. I suspect that I have seen the top of my head, in a mirror or in a photograph, but I have no distinct memory of such a thing. Today, if I lean my head forward and roll my eyes upward, I can see some of the top of my head in the glass in front of me, but I can't see all of it. I wouldn't want to. Some valiant few hairs are holding up on there, but I lament their lost brothers. No matter what, no matter that God has, has them accounted for, I count it a blessing that I am 6'5". Most people look up to me instead of down on me. Atop Adriana's brother's head, we find a zigzag scar remnant of an operation he underwent at two months to remove a prematurely fused section of his skull. Whenever he gets a haircut, his teachers ask Karina and me what happened, or they make cracks about the barber slipping clippers. In any case, essays such as this are best accomplished off the top of one's head, without too much planning or, pro- or proving. Like the acrobatics Adriana and I perform some evenings after Jeopardy. I lie on the floor, she comes running, I grab her shoulders, kick up her legs, we, tis- we twist as she flies overhead, a mess of loose hair and giggles, yet she is grace itself, from launch to landing, again and again until bedtime, when I tuck her in with a kiss on the top of her head. Of course I've seen the top of her head since the day she was born, and even now, because I'm nearly twice her height. When we go walking, I see the top of her head when I glance down. It is the father's perspective, or a god's. When Thomas Higginson asked Emily Dickinson to define poetry, she wrote, If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. I'm a father. I feel that every single day. Thank you so much. So as the the seven-year-old muse of that essay, what's your experience like to read it now? I think it's, it's very fun. I love it when my parents tell me stories about you know, how I was when I was very little. And I think 
I've always admired the way that my dad can put words together and to hear a story about me that he's written in the way that he does for everybody else in the world to hear is a very, very cool thing. Mm. Thank you. And Pat, I'm wondering how it is to suddenly hear your own words in the voice of your daughter. That was cool. We, the kids all have copies of my books and they've read some of them. I know that some of them have read the entire books, but we don't sit and talk about them or what they think. And uh, they know that they appear in the essays, but yeah, it was really sweet to hear Addie and I was imagining her as a little kid. At age seven, we had maybe a simpler relationship. Uh, we didn't have so much to worry about. There wasn't really much tension other than, you know, go to bed, no, that sort of thing. So it's a kind of time machine for me to return and think about all that lovely time and realize that we're different, but we're also the same people we we were then. I think if I were going to characterize your, your work in a, a review across three books, I would probably venture the proposition that you are not the most sentimental of writers. Um, there's a kind of coolness to it. This feels to me like as close as, as you're going to get to a love poem. That's probably true. Yeah. Uh, that's what I love so much about it. My, my wife might despair <laughs> of hearing that. She might prefer. <laughs> Hopefully she's not I off, off mic listening. Um, well, I want to then see if I can, you know, stir up some family rancor now that we've celebrated the the thing. There is an go. incident, um, not in this book, but in a previous book, in which Addie goes through through something terrible, um, at least for the reader. <laughs> Addie, could could you, if it's not too traumatizing, recount for us what that was and, and when that was? Yes. So um, I believe this was in uh, my dad's first book, Quote to the Honor, right? Dad? No, second one. Oh, sorry. There's another essay about me in the first one. I get mm -hmm. them mixed up. Um, but basically, I don't exactly remember how old I was. I do remember that um, at the time, sodas were kind of a special treat that we would get at times and it was always very lucky if you would find um, one of my parents or a sibling's can of soda that wasn't finished um, and there was no one around and you could sneak some of it basically and get a little bit more than uh, you were allotted. But um, I remember one morning I had woken up and I went into our downstairs office where really only my dad would uh, be at the time. And, um, I, I found a can of Sprite and it was open and I shook the can and I was like, this is, this is pretty full. Like I hit the jackpot. I can have some of this Sprite and no one's going to know because it's so full. And I took a big sip of the Sprite and it was not Sprite. Um, I knew immediately and I don't want to get into too much detail about the uh, texture of the spit that was inside the can. 
but um, it was horrible. And I ran immediately to the sink to try to spit it out and rinse my mouth with water. Um, but it's hard to kind of get that flavor and the texture out of your mouth after that. And at that point, it's like, what do you do? Because if I, if I tell my parents, they're going to be like, well, you were trying to sneak the soda. So it's not like I was doing a great thing. But I did. I told my parents and they laughed about it. And even now, my mom will grimace when the story is brought up. You can't bring it up around dinner time or <laughs> she gets really upset. But that is the story <laughs> of the time I drank my dad's spit. <laughs> so, so it's one thing when, you know, your, your beautiful daughter runs by you and says, I've never seen the top of my head. And you write a celebratory um love essay about, you know, kind of paternal love about that. It's quite another thing to take right. something so gross that has happened to your, to your daughter who was just seeking a little bit of sugar um, and, and bring that into the center of the essay. So, so now I'm going to ask your dad, what were you thinking? What, what, how does that become this, <laughs> an essay? So, it was one of many things constellating around the idea of spit. And I, I really liked the idea of writing an essay about something so unappealing. You know, I don't know of other essays about spit. There probably I are think some. You've done it. I've not encountered them. Well, maybe, <laughs> and who would want to write one after all, right? But I think what really happened was it was my three daughters. They were talking and one was talking about learning to ride a bike, the other was learning how to whistle, and the other was learning something else. What I don't remember. Oh, snapping her fingers. And it got me thinking, I remember learning how to spit. And that's a weird thing because I've met some people since then who say they've learned they remember learning how to spit, but it wasn't something that people really talk about. And I suspect most people don't really think of that even as something you learn. You just kind of do. But I started out exploring that and then just gathered all the spit-related anecdotes I could find, my own personal ones or familiar ones, as well as things I could research. And of course, that particular instance was so kind of emotionally shocking that it just had to be included in the essay. Luckily, I didn't have to make an essay about that event. I think that would be really difficult, probably beyond me. But it fit really well into the thematic essay about spit. And I had to write the essay to a point where it was about more than just spit, which is gross. Nobody wants to read just about that. But I think that episode also fits the larger theme, which I think the essay is largely about uh, repentance, forgiveness, the possibility of real change uh, in our lives. And I hope, I hope Addie has forgiven me for that because I've certainly <laughs> forgiven her for sneaking the, what she thought was soda. Well, I'm not going to put her on the Yeah, I've forgiven you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Addie, you know, essayists like your fathers and I, we have long conversations and we go to conferences where we twist and turn over questions of like the ethics of writing other people's experiences should we be writing about our kids when they're young you know or 
do we protect their privacy or things like that? Um, you know, as somebody who's, who's shown up in your dad's work multiple times, um, what do you think about that? I mean, you know, parents writing about their kids or, or what's it like to be a kid who, or an adult now who suddenly knows that, you know, parts of your childhood kind of popped up. Um, and now, you know, I know that you drank spit. I also know how much your dad loves you. Um, yeah, I, I'm just wondering, it would be great to hear some thoughts from the other side of that debate, because we're all the ones doing the writing. Um, but what is it like to be mm-hmm. the, the person who shows up? I think, I mean, I obviously can't speak on behalf of everyone who, um, you know, whose parents write about or talk about their experience as children. I, I feel like I'm kind of lucky in the fact that uh, my dad has written some very sweet things about me. Um, whereas I think of uh, my sister, on the other hand, who <laughs> she has an essay where my dad talks about when she um, put her booger back. <laughs> right. I don't have that essay. Um, and as far as the fit goes, I, I mean, it might be more uncomfortable except for the fact that that's a story that I think everyone I am friends with or my parents are friends with knows about. So I think it's just, it's one of those stories that's so bizarre and strange that I feel like you have to share it. Right. Like nobody really has that experience except for me that I've ever met. Um, and so I, I think it's fine. And I also think I know about the way that like my dad has tried teaching me to spit, for instance, and spit is something that, you know, I've, I've heard him talk about it a lot. And so it makes sense that he fit it where he did. Um, but I guess the short answer is I'm okay with it. Um, and granted, like not the whole world has read this essay quite yet. Um, but if that happens, I think I would still be okay with it. It, it creates a lot of sympathy for you. That's for sure. Uh, well, mm-hmm. let me ask this. If, if you were going to, if you were able to give a request, like I, I had asked of you and, and you were able to say, you know, dad, here's the essay about some experience or some event in our shared life, and I want you to write an essay about it. Does anything come to mind? Hmm. I think one event that does come to mind, this is kind of like a scarier event, I guess. Um, there was a time when we were in Uruguay, which is where my mom is from. And uh, we had gone to the beach as we tend to do when we go places that have a beach. Um, And my brother and I always, so he and I are the oldest too. And so we always swim out the furthest naturally. Um, But I remember this specific day when um, my parents had even warned us, like, don't go out too far. Um, but we did and I got stuck and that was just like a really crazy experience. 
Um, and I think it'd be kind of interesting to hear it from his perspective. Um, because I obviously had the perspective of being stuck and not being able to yell loud enough to reach my dad. Um, but in the end, my dad was the one who, um, my brother ended up swimming back out to get my dad and my dad came back and he helped bring me out of the, um, like out of the current basically. But I think that'd be a cool experience for him to write about if he wants to write about something scary like that, or if he has any ideas to, I guess, attach to that experience. Yeah. I would like to read that essay. I would like you to be a featured writer in that essay. Um, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, I, I, that is something that it's, it's been on my mind. I've, I've tried to find the way to write it. That wouldn't be just like the easy metaphor. Like I've heard in a church talk, a similar story about being caught in a riptide and, you know, how we have to be spiritually prepared and that sort of thing. Right. Take seriously the warnings and that, and I just, that seems like the natural place for that to go, but the, the already well tread, well trod path. And I've, I've not found the way to write it in a, I, I suppose it's just sit down and start writing and see what else comes to it or throw it your way, Eric, see what you bring to it and then, pass it back my way. And that would probably resolve the question altogether. Yeah. Now you've got me already thinking about what that essay might look like, which is great for me as an essayist and not so good for me as an interviewer. So I'm going to quickly pivot. Um, (laughs) I'm going to quickly pivot and and maybe take us, I'm mindful of the time um, toward the end of our interview. But I think, you know, given... And, and I, I'm very excited to hear what Addie's going to contribute to this too. Given everything that's happened since, you know, March of last year in our country, um, around the globe, the kind of crises after crises, the, you know, the, the pandemic, the economic and ecological crises, the, the racial reckonings, the white supremacists in the White House. I mean, we're all recognizing that we're going through this extremely pivotal time in America and globally. And that's also happening for our literature. Um, it seems to me that, that 2020 might be another date in which we start a new period of American literature. You know, right now American literature gets split between the, before the civil war and after the civil war. And if it's, as many people are saying, a new civil war, we might have, a new break in what American literature is and needs to be. So I'm curious, you know, I had asked Addie um, on a kind of personal level, what, what kind of essay she might like to see. Um, But I'm curious for you both, you know, the, the book ends with Pat, with you kind of taking up the question of, you know, what do we do with Trump in the white house and, that was just the beginning. Um, it was still early in the Trump presidency. It might have even been before that. And uh, and so I'm I'm curious for both of you, like, what is the writing that that you want to do or see now? What does that look like? You know, what are the essays that need to be out there now? You know, who I really miss is Brian Doyle. I 
I would like his wisdom and clarity, essayistic clarity, you know, not convergent but divergent clarity. And since he's been gone three plus years now, I think, you know, more people writing in that vein of an open, generous, embracing uh, storytelling that models a different response to the world that kind of helps us see how the ideas and attitudes that we bring with us predetermine our interpretations of things and help us to shake those loose so that we can respect at least, but maybe accept and maybe integrate other perspectives into our meaning making in the world. So, um, but I mean, on the one hand, it will be new, but I think it won't be that new either. This is the type of thing literature has always been doing. The, the best writers are always a bit more perceptive, I think, and they translate what they can perceive into words that others can understand, be influenced by, inspired by, and change the way they see the world. That's happened to me quite a bit with the reading that I've done. And sometimes the writers address issues head on, and sometimes they do it in a sideways way. I'm more of a sideways style writer, but maybe I'll pivot and do some things more head on. Just before talking to you, Eric, we at BYU, we had a reading by Rick Barrett, the poet, and he has a recent book just last end of last year called During the Pandemic. It was a chapbook, but it was his each flash nonfiction prose poem piece begins with that phrase during the pandemic. And the pieces very clearly have a, an urgency to them, a kind of morality, but they're not confronting directly. They're not trying to address grievances and that sort of, sort of thing. But I, I feel from them that they do participate in a world shaping. And I hope that they'll reach more people than the typical, right? The writing that you and I and Rick and most of us do is somewhat insular, right? We speak to our own. We preach to the choir kind of thing. But maybe if it's not really preaching, but it's just singing, <laughs> if we're going to, maybe we're in the choir, right? And and the singing creates the impetus to harmonize with others. And then that harmonizing, even with people who bring with them different ideas, um, can achieve a, a kind of unity that's not universal or wholesale unity, but like at least ephemeral unities that can then lead to better lives for all. And this sounds really almost cheesily optimistic, but uh, maybe we have to be that way a little bit in order to see things happen. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And Addie, you know, you're, you're 21, you're of a generation that's inheriting huge crises and a lot of collective trauma. I work with uh, many writers who are your age and and they're trying to figure out what it is they're going to write, what it is they want to say in response to this. I'm just curious, you know, what would you be interested in reading or if, as you, as you begin to create and communicate and write yourself, what would you be interested in writing? Yeah. Um, I think, well, 
I like what you said, obviously, like, um, I am pretty young in the midst of all the current events that are happening and all the, um, I mean, not a lot of it is very good or, um, positive, but I think that, um, kind of, uh, similar to what my, I mean, obviously there's the pandemic, right. But I think that this past year has, um, kind of shed a light on a lot of, um, like racial injustice that is continuing to occur. You mentioned that, um, history used to be split before and after the civil war. And I think it's, um, especially growing up where I did, you kind of think that, well, we're good now. Like we've made it, you know, there's no slaves anymore. There's no segregation anymore. So we're fine. Um, but that isn't true. And I think that, um, I've been trying to learn a lot more about microaggressions and I know that, um, there is a lot of writing on the matter, especially by, uh, authors who are people of color. Um, but I think that I would like to see more of that. Um, and I think that it is very important that people of color, growing up at the same time that I did, um, share their personal experiences on the matter because these people are growing up the same time that I am or even younger and they are still having experiences where they face racism or injustice. And I think that that's important to talk about. Um, and then I also think that it's important for uh, white people to just listen. And so I would love to just see more of that and hopefully get everybody to listen. Um, but I, I know that's again, very optimistic, <laughs> but I, I, think I don't know. We need that optimism. And I think we need people willing to, to listen to the stories, especially the ones that are, are hard to listen to. So I think that that is a, that's a very hopeful way to move forward. Thank you. Pat Madden, Addie Madden, thank you for being on the New Books Network. Thanks so much for talking with us, Eric. It was fun. Yeah, thank you so much. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Patrick Madden, author of Disparates, here on the New Books Network.